Welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. It's week 49, Revelation 3 through chapter 7 for the week of December 4th through December 10th. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We are here in the book of Revelation. We began it last week. And as we head towards the conclusion of our time in the New Testament to this year, um, we want to continue to study and to reflect upon what this book has to teach us uh, for our faith and for our practice and for our lives uh, here. So we are here walking through Revelation 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Revelation 3 uh, continues, right? We In chapter 2, we began those letters to the seven churches. Um, and chapter three continues that before we eventually begin a vision uh, that John is shown uh, in chapter four, five, six, and seven. So we want to continue reading some of these devotional thoughts from uh, Horatius Bonar, that um, uh, great uh, Scottish um, uh, Christian writer and pastor uh, from the 1800s. And uh, so I want to read some of these devotional thoughts to you to kind of help us grasp, think about the Word of God and what we're reading uh, here. And one of the things consistently that we're told in each of these little, uh, these letters that are written to the seven churches, right, um, uh, Jesus Christ is described uniquely in each of these letters, uh, you know, for instance, in ch- verse uh, uh, you know, so in verse one of chapter three, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, uh, verse seven, the words of the Holy One, the true one. These are all uh, talking about Christ, of course. Um, and also he he gives, uh, re, you know, uh, specific words to these churches and then um, calls them to endure and uh, and applies it directly uh, to each of these individual churches and their situations. In verse 19 of chapter 3, to the church in Laodicea, he says this eventually, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Earlier he said that, you know, you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, and therefore I want to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, But here he's telling them, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. And remember, these are the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, speaking these words to the churches and to us from heaven, not simply the the words that he spoke on earth or in the gospels, but here in Revelation, he's speaking to us uh, during, uh, from his ascended throne um, in heaven. And so upon this section, Horatius Bonar has this section, the love and the discipline. He says this, how soon a church goes down How quickly its love and holiness and zeal fade away. One generation often sees its rise, decline, and fall. Its gold becomes dim, its blossoms wither, its cheek becomes pale, with the symptoms of deadly decline or flushed with the passions produced by drinking the world's cup and partaking of the world's fellowships. Spirituality loses ground. Worldliness, either in a gross or in a refined form, steals in. Reality and religion disappears. Enjoyment of prayer in the Bible ceases. Pleasure politics and exciting literature supply the place which the things of God once held. First love is gone. Joy and peace become strangers. Religious formalism, routine ritualism, by which a man is enabled to quiet his conscience with a few external performances while devoting the rest of his time to vanity or business are adopted. The soul withers. The eye that looked upward now looks downward. And the once religious man who did run well takes the downward path into lukewarmness or death. Yet Jesus leaves him not. He hateth putting away. He pursues his fugitive. He pleads with the backslider, return 
and I will heal. First of all, the I here is emphatic, and by its prominence, Christ presents himself specially as the lover, the rebuker, the chastener. His thoughts are not, his th- are not our thoughts, nor our ways his ways. He loves where others would hate. He shows his love by chastening where others would show theirs by indulging. He that spareth the rod hateth the child. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Herein is love, love to Laodicea, even in their lukewarmness. It is not repent that I may love thee, it is I love thee, therefore repent. The sinner, whether of Ephesus or Sardis or Laodicea, as long as he remains self-satisfied and happy in his worldliness, cares nothing for any love higher than the creature's. He loves the world, and he would fain have the world to love him. This would be his heaven. His gods and goddesses would all be here. But when trial comes and sorrow lays hold, and the deep consciousness of evil burdens, and the prospect of coming wrath rouses him, then he looks round and asks for love. Is there anyone to love me, anyone that can love one so unlovable? The answer is, none on earth, but one in heaven. Jesus loveth still. All Laodicea's unlovableness has not quenched his love. The worst of the seven churches is that which receives his fullest words of love, the love that passeth knowledge. Mark the way in which this love deals with Laodicea. It deals in tenderness and yet in solemn severity. Instead of letting Laodicea escape, it takes hold of her as a wise father of his disobedient child and makes her sensible how much it hates the sin. Love cannot bear lukewarmness. It expects love for love and will leave no method untried in order to win back the straying heart, however far it has gone, either in indifference or hatred. First of all, he says, I rebuke. He, he rebukes, but he reproves by word and deed. His words are full of tenderness, yet also conveying solemn and searching rebuke. Such rebuke may be his strange work, for fury is not in him. Yet he does administer the rebuke when it is needed, not harshly, yet sometimes severely, for he speaks as one who has authority and who will not be mocked. He not only says, I rebuke, but I chasten. What the chastening was, we we know not. It would be something specially suited to the self-sufficiency and worldliness of the Laodiceans. Perhaps they were stripped of their riches, perhaps visited by sickness and death, laid desolate by grievous sorrow, some heavy blow or some long-continued trial stroke upon stroke, crushing and emptying them. The chastisement, we are sure, would correspond with the cherished sins, searching the conscience and breaking the heart in pieces. For the Lord leaves not his own, even in their backsliding, nor indeed any who name his name. The unbelieving world may be allowed to go on unchecked in its wickedness and vanity, but they who call themselves Christ may expect discipline. By naming his name, they have brought themselves under his special rule, and he will deal with them as he dealt with Laodicea. They profess to be his, to have been bought by him, to follow him. They must therefore know his rod and be treated differently from those who reject his sway and service. Discipline because of permitted sin, because of indulged worldliness, because of defection from truth or or holiness. Discipline, it may be, of no ordinary severity they must be prepared for. In faithfulness, as well as love, he will chasten. Whatever it may cost, they must be made to feel the evil of their ways. But also we see the exhortation of love. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The word zealous contrasts with lukewarmness and implies true warmth and fervor. Whilst he says, I would thou wert cold or hot, 
He shows by this word zealous that he, that he desires to see zeal quickened in this church and lukewarmness done away. Be zealous, be fervent in spirit, have done with coldness and half-heartedness. Rouse thee into the fervor of thy early days ere this lukewarmness fall upon thee. Repent also, repent of thy present miserable estate, of thy apostasy and declension and worldliness. Repent in dust and ashes, retrace thy steps. Awake, thou that sleepest. Thy estimate of thyself is high. Come down from thy loftiness. Thou sayest, I am rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. Come down from the self-sufficiency and learn that thou art not what thou thinkest thyself to be. God's estimate of thee and thy estimate of thyself are widely different. Know thyself as he knows thee. Take his estimate of thy poverty and blindness and cast thyself down before him. Thou art not the Laodicea of other days. Thou must go back to thy early zeal and faith and love. Be not high-minded, but fear. Abhor thyself and turn from thy lukewarmness. All this is the language of love. It is the treatment of love. It is love that is rebuking and chastening and exhorting. Hear the voice of love, the unchanging love of him who yearns over thee in thy declension and longs to see thee restored. This was the beginning of thy love, as well as of thy confidence. We have known and believed the love which God hath to us. Go back to this, and what thou didst get there at first, thou wilt get there again. Know that God is love. Now that that is a that is a, a very I think beautiful uh, thing there because so often when we read like this letter to the Laodiceans we sometimes forget the love of Jesus in saying these things don't we we sometimes hear Jesus rebuking them and saying well that's the the lukewarm church and look at the harsh words Jesus has for them and that is true it's severe but it doesn't mean it's not loving Jesus loves the church and that's why he rebukes them. Uh, that's why he disciplines them. That's why he reproves them and calls them back to himself. That is great love and concern for their souls, for their well-being, for their good. That's why Jesus does what he does. And, and that is that is exactly what's going on there. And so in all of these story, these letters to the churches, remember the love of Jesus for his church and for his churches. And how he addresses them, how he loves them, how he takes care of them. Remember that, um, because I think that's so important as we consider as we consider it. Okay, next we continue into chapter 4 now, because after uh, speaking to the church, as we read in beginning of verse 1 of chapter 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and so on and so on. And eventually it, it tells us and it reminds us uh, the, the, the creatures that are circling the throne praising God and eventually these 24 elders fall down before God and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
this section, this devotion here is called Glory to the Glorious One. And he's also quoting, by the way, he also has this verse uh, from Psalm 29, verse 9, in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. The above verse of the 29th Psalm, Bonar says, is more exactly rendered in the margin. In his temple, every wit of it uttereth glory. The incense fills the house and comes forth from it breathing glory. The volume of sound fills the temple in every part and pours itself from every stone and timber, from floor to roof in every part, proclaiming glory. Such was the praise of Israel according to the flesh in the temple. Such is the praise of Jehovah in the heavenly city and temple, ascending everywhere. The glory of the Lord filleth the house. First of all, look at the burden of the praise. It is glory. All that is excellent and perfect in him is the burden of the song that is sung. Glory is the fully developed or unfolded unfolded excellency of a thing. The flower is the glory of a plant. The fruit is the glory of the vine or olive. It is the excellency of Jehovah that is the theme of praise in his temple, especially the glory of Messiah, for he is the Jehovah of the psalm, the God of Israel. The heavens tell his glory and earth is full of it. All creation speaks of it, sea and land, man and beast. But his temple is the special place which this glory fills and from which its praise issues forth. Secondly, the place of the praise, his temple, the place which he built for himself where his altar smokes and his incense arises and his sacrifices are offered up and his priesthood minister, that is the place of the great self-revelation and of the proclamation of his glory, the glory of his greatness and righteousness, especially of his grace, For when Moses asked to see his glory, he proclaimed himself as the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Thirdly, the things that praise each one or every one or every whit of it. There is no vacant spot, no idle voice, nothing dumb. All is vocal with praise. Everything utters glory. Every echo is glory without and within each pillar, each vessel, each chamber, each altar, each priest, each sacrifice. All and each utter the same sound, glory. Glory to the righteous one. Glory to Messiah, King and Priest, Lord of heaven and earth. His name is as ointment poured forth. His excellency is the burden of every song. In connection with the words of David, we take up the words of John. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory. Yes, Jesus, Messiah, the Lamb that was slain, the King on the throne, creator of the universe, head of all things, is he worthy to receive the glory and why? Well, he's worthy to receive it because of his person. As having in himself all the perfections of the creator and of the creature, as very God and very man, the word made flesh, he is worthy to receive glory. Godhead Godhead and manhood united in one wondrous person make him infinitely glorious. Through him, new glory comes to the whole Godhead. He is the revealer of the Father. His glory thus overflows and fills both heaven and earth, nay, the whole universe. Secondly, he receives glory because of his work. The excellency of his propitiation is infinite. It is excellent in itself, in its revelation of divine wisdom, in its manifestation of divine love, in its reconciliation of grace with righteousness, in its everlasting results. Because of such a work, it is said, thou art worthy to receive glory. 
but thirdly also because of his life on earth. His whole earthly life was marvelous. There has been nothing like it, neither shall it be. It was absolute perfection in every part, the perfection of a human life, the life of a son of Adam, a life upon a fallen earth assailed by Satan amid evils and enemies and weaknesses and sorrows, the perfection of infancy or childhood, of boyhood, of manhood, perfection in the whole round of that which we call the life of man, perfection not only as measured by man, but as estimated by God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because of this life, it is said, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory. But fourthly, also because of the redemption of his church, his people seeing thou hast redeemed us, and in the various parts of this redemption from the eternal purpose to the glorious completion, there is such excellency, such an exhibition of power and wisdom and love, that because of this, not simply because of the result, but of the wondrous process, we look up and say, thou art worthy to receive glory. He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou hast given me to do. And he who glorified the Father on earth has been given by the Father, has been by the Father glorified in heaven. Father, glorify me, was his prayer, and it has been fully answered. The Son of Man, as the Redeemer of the Church, has been exalted to the glory, and has received the name which is above every name. As the Creator of all things, he is worthy of the glory, still more as the Redeemer of his Church. Also, next, six, uh, fifthly, because of what he is now in heaven, he has triumphed over his enemies, he has abolished death. He has emptied the grave. He has risen. He has ascended on high. He ever lives to intercede. He has received the crown of heaven. He is the head of principalities and powers. He sits on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Thus enthroned and crowned, mediating and interceding, he receives the homage of heaven. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory. But sixthly and lastly, because of what he is to be and to do when he comes again. His excellency, though perfect, cannot be said to be completed. It is always on the increase as new rays of splendor issue from him. At his second coming, he appears as king of kings, the renewer of creation, the restorer of Israel, the binder of Satan, the executor of the father's righteous vengeance on a guilty earth. He comes as judge, as deliverer, as the second Adam, as not only the king of Israel, but the king of earth. Then shall be the fullest manifestation of the Godhead, according to the eternal purpose of divine self-manifestation. Well, may this song be sung, Thou art worthy to receive glory. Let us appreciate His Excellency. Taking God's testimony to Him and God's estimate of His glorious worth, let us prize Him as He deserves to be prized. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Let us thoroughly trust and love Him. He merits all our trust and love. Let us do justice to His love and love Him in return. Let us make use of his fullness. It contains all we need, and it is always accessible. A well of heavenly water, a storehouse of inexhaustible provisions, a treasury of infinite worth. Let us bow before him. Every knee is yet to bow. Let us bow before him and worship him now on earth, as we shall hereafter in heaven. Let us sing the song of praise. When we get a glimpse of him now, we praise him. When we shall see him as he is hereafter, we, shall, we will praise him more and sing the song of the redeemed. Thou art worthy to receive glory. Okay. And then lastly, uh, it goes through here and talks about Christ receiving the honor of the scroll, right? To unfurl, unfurl it and um, 
And then eventually we have the seven seals. Before it talks about this great multitude, we see the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Before eventually in verses 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is this great multitude that is here in Revelation? And what should we think about this? Well, Horatius Bonar says this, The vision of pent-up judgment begins this chapter, then the sealing and the ingathering. Our text is the result of the ingathering as seen in heaven. The process of taking out this people, this election from Jew and Gentile, may be almost invisible attended also with labor and grief and persecution. But the result is glorious, visible in heaven. The sower has been doing his work in weeping, but the sheaves are plenteous and the harvest one of everlasting joy. Let us look at this heavenly vision. First of all, the numbers, a great multitude which no man could number. The 3,000 at Pentecost were a large number, but this is greater. The hundreds and thousands, both in Judea and throughout the Gentile world at Corinth, Rome, Ephesus, Philippi, and the other places, were specimens of the great ingathering. But here we have the aggregate, the summing up of all. Like Israel, they cannot be numbered for multitude. They are like the stars of heaven or the sand which is by the seashore. The little flock shall have multiplied into the innumerable company, and the few drops shall become the mighty ocean. What a difference between the then and the now. Secondly, the nationalities. This is not the harvest of Israel, but of the world. The world has gone out from the word has gone out from Jerusalem into all the earth. All nations hear the gospel, and some out of each of them obey it and turn to the Lord. Every people furnishes its quota to this great assembly. Every tribe has its representatives here. Every region, every color, every language, every kingdom, every people, every age and century. It is the general assembly and church of the firstborn. How various the company and face and speech and manners and dress and habitation. Here all nationalities meet in one great heavenly nationality, without jealousy or distrust, all one in him who redeemed them by his blood. Now it is seen that God has made of all one blood all nations of the earth, and that under the shadow of the one great sacrifice all these find shelter, sinners yet pardoned, lost but saved, vile but washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Thirdly, the posture. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. He that sitteth on the throne and the Lamb are distinguished the one from the other. This mighty multitude stands before both. They stand. It is the posture of triumph and honor. Having done all, they stand, Ephesians 6.13. Not bowed down, not kneeling, nor prostrate. The erect posture indicates the high position to which they have been brought. And especially is this hour apparent when we see them standing before the throne and before the Lamb in the very presence of the King. To stand before the throne is, next to sitting on it, the highest elevation. Both the sitting and the standing are connected with glory. And it would seem as if these redeemed ones sometimes occupied the throne and sometimes stood before it. Their shame and stance are at an end. Glory and nearness are now their portion forever. They stand before the king and not before mean men. Fourthly, the raiment. They are clothed with white robes. Christ's transfiguration raiment was white, shining as the sun. So is theirs. 
They are like him in this as in all else. Their old earthly garments are gone. They have received the glorious raiment which, which assimilates them outwardly as they already are inwardly to their Lord. My beloved is white and ruddy. Song of Solomon 5.10 It is the raiment of heaven. Not only is it Christ's robe, but it is that of angels. When they come down to earth, they appear in white, shining garments. Even the seven angels of vengeance are clothed in pure and white linen. When Christ appears to John, his hairs and his head and hairs are wool, white like wool, as white as snow. The stone is white. The horses are white. The cloud is white. The throne is white. Whiteness, as the combination of all that is beautiful and perfect in color, is the hue of heaven. And with this, the redeemed are invested clothed with white robes. Secondly, it is the raiment of purity and perfection. It is the fitting raiment of those who are blameless, faultless, unblameable, and unreprovable, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No other hue could express the perfect purity of the redeemed. The false church, the mother of harlots, has her scarlet and purple and gold and gems, but the true and pure church has her fine linen, clean and white. There is no spot, in thee. Thirdly, it is the raiment of triumph. It is given to him that overcometh. Purple might be the robe of the Roman victor, but Christ's victorious warriors are arrayed in white as their captain goes forth on the white horse, conquering and to conquer. Fourthly, it is the bridal dress. White is the invariable color used both by the bride and the bridesmaids. So we find it at the marriage of the lamb. The raiment of the bride is white, At her marriage, she wears the robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Her dress is connected with the cross. She knows what it is to be justified by his blood. Fifthly, it is the festal dress. At the marriage supper, this is the raiment provided. The bride sits down at the table in the king's pavilion, arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. How glad that marriage day and marriage feast. How glorious the bridegroom and the bride. Fifthly, then, we talk at the badge. They had palms in their hands. The palm is the symbol of gladness and of victory. Here it is specially used in reference to the Feast of Tabernacles, the gladdest of all Israel's festivals. Leviticus 23, verse 40. The true Feast of the Tabernacles, the memorial of our desert sojourn and earthly pilgrimage ended forever, the saints shall celebrate in the new Jerusalem. Their heavenly palms carried in their glorified hands shall have a meaning then and there unknown before. The days of their mourning shall be ended, their everlasting joy begun. Sixthly, and lastly, the shout. They cry with a loud voice, Salvation to our God that sitteth on the throne and to the Lamb. It is not a song they sing, no measured melody, no harp, nor flute, nor dulcimer are here. It is the irrepressible shout rising and bursting forth from delivered men, from conquerors on a hard-fought field that have as yet no time to throw their feelings into elaborate song or harmony. What a thrilling shout! Salvation! We are saved at last. We are landed on the shore at last. We are in the new Jerusalem and before the throne at last. Who would not be here to join in that cry, that loud voice, that multitudinous shout that shall fill both earth and heaven? In that day, shall we not be satisfied? Nay, more than satisfied.
Well, there you have it. Those are some thoughts and reflections upon uh, the book of Revelation here. I think that you'll find that to be encouraging and that the book of Revelation is really an amazing book of praise to Christ, to God, to who he is for us and his salvation for us and his wisdom and glory and power shown in salvation and in ultimately putting all of his enemies under his feet. Thank you so much for listening to this, and I hope to hear from you uh, next time as we get together. We're wrapping up as we continue Revelation and head towards the conclusion of this year. Take care, and God bless.